0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Finn Holm about his book, The Gods of the Sea: Whales and Coastal Communities in Northeast Japan, circa 1600 to 2019 which is out from Cambridge University Press, in 2023, when Japan withdrew from the International Whaling Commission and resumed commercial whaling in 2019. One of the justifications given to both domestic and international audiences was an unwillingness to dispense with a centuries-long national whaling tradition to, quote, pass on our whaling culture to the next generation, end quote, in the words of one whaling executive. Combining painstaking local and microhistorical work with a more expansive ecological vision of environmental history, Bin Holmes' Gods of the Sea demonstrates that when industrial whaling was introduced to Japan in the mid-19th century, it met stiff and sometimes violent resistance initially because it clashed with long-established cultural and moral norms in northeast Japanese coastal communities. In fact, some of the cities and towns at the center of Japan's modern whaling industry now were actually among the most vehemently anti-whaling communities prior to the 1910s. This attention to historical detail is a refreshing corrective to the invented tradition of national whaling culture. Okay, uh, Dr. Holm, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, So we're going to be talking today uh, about your book, The Gods of the Sea, Whales and Coastal Communities in Northeast Japan, circa 1600 to 2019. Um, And I wonder if you could tell us first how it is that you got interested in this specific uh, project, uh, the research that became this book.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, and please call me Finn. Um, a little bit about myself first. Um, I'm from Switzerland, so I studied history and Japanese studies at the University of Zurich. And during my master's, I did an exchange year in Tokyo, and this was the time when I first uh, was in Japan for a longer time and had a language exchange partner to learn some Japanese. Um, this was a girl who learned German at the same time. And we talked about a lot of different topics, and one day, a Japanese wailing came up as a topic. And for whatever reason, uh, the discussion became very heated very quickly. And at some point, she even stood up in the Starbucks, we were meeting and began screaming at me that I'm a cultural imperialist. And I was very shocked by that. This was not an ex- um, a reaction I expected from her or from a Japanese person in general, I guess. And it really made me think, okay, so something is going on here, obviously my own uh, arguments and opinions seem to be very flawed They seem to be very one-sided, but also her arguments only made partly sense to me. So I really wanted to dig more into this. And when I finished my masters, I decided, okay, this is the topic I want to look at. And I want to understand the culture, counter cultural understandings between um, what Japanese whaling is, and how we see it in the West, and how we can reconcile these different views. And this is how I became interested in the project at large.
0: Well, that's such an interesting backstory. i had I had no idea. We've, we did to. to uh... Let our viewers in here. Finn and I have have talked before, um, and even a little bit about this project. But uh, I, I just had no idea that's where it all came from. That's fascinating, and I guess um, it it points to, uh, as you say, the sort of very emotional uh, nature of the discourse, which I think is something that um, maybe history is an interesting, you know, response to that because it it kind of ha- uh, there's a sort of emotional distance that you get when you're you know sort of looking back in history. Um, that's, right. that's just that's fascinating. So um with with uh with, with that in mind, uh let's talk a little bit about some of the, the, the problematics that you set up in the book specifically, because they're not exactly uh that. Um so you're talking about the Tohoku area, northeast Japan, uh, and in particular about uh you know, two cities come up a lot, well, a town and a city, Hachinohe and Ayukawa. Um, in the epilogue to the book, uh you write, quote, there's little doubt for people in Hachinohe or Ayukawa that they are representatives of Japan's national whaling culture. And yet, as you point out, there's there's a great irony in this, because this is kind of an invented tradition of, quote unquote, national whaling culture. Um, And the irony is that it would be embedded in that in the culture of that particular area of the coastal northeast of Japan. So I think it's a good idea to maybe start with that irony. What is it? Why is this ironic? And what about national whaling culture uh, has it in scare quotes in the book for you?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And this is really the starting point for me for the whole project, is national whaling cultures in square quotes. And just to go back to the example at the very beginning, the girl I talked to, she was from Okinawa. And most of the whaling nowadays happens in the Northeast, so in the Tohoku area. So this is really something that the Japanese themselves perceive as something national. So whaling is something that happens in all of Japan, and it has happened in history for a very long time. And this is also the mindset I set on when I made my first field work during my PhD. I visited different whaling places. I spoke with whalers, with policymakers, and everyone was telling me the same. Japan has a very long whaling history. All of the Japanese are pro whaling, and this is just how the Japanese people work. And especially one um, policymaker I met with, he was very senior and um, he was very interesting to talk to because he showed me an historical map to make this claim that Japanese. Uh, whaling is a very old tradition. And he showed me this map from the Michi area, I I think it was 1885 or something, and he showed me all the different places in Japan where whaling did happen at that point in time. And when I saw this map, I immediately saw that many places in Japan did not have whaling at all, especially the northeast. So I began to ask him why is there no whaling there? And he really couldn't give me an answer. He said that there's a lot of whaling today there, but not in the past. So, this is how I became interested in the Northeast. And of course, a uh, few, few days later, I took the Shinkansen to the Northeast, to Sendai, and then uh, to the different whaling places that exist there today to find out what is going on there. And um, yeah, it turned out that um, nowadays it's some of the few last places that still do coastal whaling, so small, st- small scale whaling. Um, but this tradition is only around 100 years old. And when I did my archival research in the region, I saw that um, prior to this uh, 1900, there were not only no whaling, but many of the people were against whaling, they were anti whaling And this really intrigued me, especially in the place Hachinoe, which you already mentioned, which is a, a town in Aomori prefecture, very much in the northeast, just south of Hokkaido. Um, there in 1911, over 1000 people, mostly fishermen, came together to protest against the construction of a new whaling station and burned this whaling station down and two people died in the process, so it was a very huge event for the town's history. However, when Japan left the International Whaling Commission in 2019, so not that long ago, uh, the mayor of Hachinoe gave an interview and said that Hachinohe wants to restart commercial whaling now, now that Japan is free of the international regulations. And he wants to do this in Hachinohe because Hachinohe has a very long traditions of using whales. And this was very interesting for me because he did not really elaborate on the very complicated history the town has, but just um, showed it as something positive. Um, as something that uh, Hachinoa and whaling belongs together and that this for me exactly is this irony i want to look at that the same region that is today seen as the defender of japan's long japan's long whaling tradition was before the introduction of industrial whaling, the same region that was most fiercely against whaling.
0: Right, and what you just said there at the very end, uh, in in sort of detailing this fascinating kind of uh, reversal that happens, um, is industrial whaling, which segues very nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask about, which is you know, industrial whaling is introduced to Japan in essentially the late 19th century. Um, So let's talk a little bit about what came before it. If there wasn't, you know, especially industrial whaling, but not a lot of whaling at all in the Northeast, um, how did industrial whaling change, uh, you know, whaling in Japan generally, but especially in the Tohoku region? And specifically in, in the book, you suggest that industrial whaling replaced uh, what you're calling a holistic relationship with whales based on a moral framework and moral ecology. So can you define those terms? What is it that you mean by holistic and by a moral framework or moral ecology in the way that uh, people of the region dealt with whales prior to industrial whaling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Before I go to the northeast, I just have to a little bit broaden up the picture to understand how whaling in Japan is generally seen. So the Japanese have used whales for as long as there have been people in the Japanese archipelago, mostly as stranded whales. So when a whale beaches at the shore, then people did come, pick it up, take the meat, and so on. And um, what we call active whaling probably emerged around the 5070s in um, the Bay of Ise. and From there, it was um, spread to many parts in Western Japan. And these were new techniques to actively hunt whales from shore stations going out, um, trying to capture whales with large nets and bringing them them on land and then harvesting this. And as I said, this was mostly happening in in the western part of Japan, Kyushu, uh, the Key Peninsula, and so on. Um, In the northeast, meanwhile, many um, Japan fishing communities did not engage in this kind of whaling. And when whalers from western Japan arrived at the coast, for example, in 1677 in the near Ayokava, um, there were large protests against this type of whaling, as uh, the locals believed that killing whales would cause coastal pollution, because when you kill a whale, a lot of blood and oil is uh, spread around the oceans, and this again um, affects the lo- local ecosystem, as we would say today, today, and it would also drive away the fish that the locals uh, need. So there was a lot of conflict. There was also conflict over the whale bodies. The people in the Northeast, as I said, used um, stranded whales for the meat. Um, And now when the uh, whalers from Western Japan came, they took away all these potential whales that would strand otherwise. And so there was this conflict about this resource. So this um, idea of that the whales are useful for the coastal ecosystem, or that killing them would hurt the coastal eco- ecosystem, is what I call moral ecology in the book. Whales are seen as a necessary part of the ecosystem, and they should not be hunted because this would disturb um, this uh, this approach. So, without whales, for example, it was thought um, humans cannot uh, hunt fish because whales bring fish towards the course coast, and um, the Japanese fishermen only had uh, fixed nets installed very close to the coast. And if the whale did not bring the fish, then there was no fishing. So this knowledge of whales being useful on the one hand and killing whales being harmful, on the other hand, was transferred between generations, uh, for example, in folklore, but also in material objects, so-called whale stones that we find all over uh, the Northeast, which were erected to, for example, tank stranded whales. So the main argument in the book, I guess, would be that uh, the human whale relationship um, should not only be framed through whaling, meaning human killing whales, but also incorporate nonviolent ways of interspecies interaction. And this is what I think is this hol- holistic relationship with whales. It's more than just humans killing whales. There are also other ways of how humans and whales have interacted. And with this, I come back to your original question about industrial whaling. So what I described so far has been what we call traditional whaling in the west in the Western part of Japan. And this came to an end in the 1870s due to overhunting um, on the one hand because of American whalers but also Japanese whalers themselves as well. And for a time, there was not a lot of whaling in the 1880s, 1890s in Japan and the whole, whole industry seemed to have died out. However, at the very end of the uh, 19th century there were new um, whaling methods coming from Norway with motorized boats, with harpoon cannons, with industrial um, stations. And this allowed this allowed to hunt whales offshore and to kill much more species than that was possible before. Even um, whale species such as fin whales, which are very fast and normally you couldn't catch them. So people from Western Japan once again um, wanted to build new whaling stations, and they not only built built them in Western Japan, but all over the Japanese archipelago, Um, also in Korea, in Taiwan, so all the colonies as well, and of course also in the Northeast, because there are a lot of whales in the Northeast. and this then caused these large scale protests that I spoke of at the very beginning, for example, in Hachinohe, when now these new industrial whaling techniques with whalers from Western Japan came to the Northeast, and they wanted to bring um, whaling once more to the region.
0: Yeah, one of the uh, things that I uh, found quite interesting in thinking about this um, argument that you're making in the book is the sort of uh, the capital-intensive nature of industrial whaling and how that really wasn't, even if there had been a different relationship to whales in the Northeast, it was not a and capitally intense. I don't know if that's the correct English, but it was not a, a place with a sort of industrializing base with a lot of investment capital that could have probably done this anyway. And so you have this interesting sort of importation of um, a different relationship, an economic relationship to whaling um, that is based on the ability to invest in all of these new uh, boats and techniques, the, you know, the exploding harpoons and the winches and all those things that characterize uh, the in dawn of modern industrial whaling. Um, and I, I, I think that's sort of a really interesting thing that you're bringing out in, co- in concert with the argument that you're making in the book. Um, and I wanted to then um, sort of jump into the book itself and look at the two sections. Um, first, starting with part one, uh, living with whales 1600 to 1850, and then moving on to part two, destroying the Cetosphere 1850 to 2019. So looking at part one, I think that you know, if I could venture, I think your meta argument here is about the importance of doing local uh, and micro histories as a sort of antidote to the cognitive distortion feel of this, these sort of invented traditions and their kind of modern mythologies. Uh, and one of the ways that you sort of uh, demonstrate this as a methodology um, is. Uh, stepping back from an anthropocentric view of local traditions and giving whales and whale migration um, agency in shaping these practices and worldviews. And I think this is uh, very much a part of your idea about the uh, sort of moral ecology uh, and the holistic relationship, where it's not just humans relating to whales, but it's also whales in a sense relating to humans. Um, And I wonder if you think that's a fair summary and if you could elaborate on uh, what you're doing there in the first section of the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a very fair summary, and it was one of the great, or the, the, the biggest struggles I had while writing this book, to uh, give, uh, to present whales differently than it's done in most histories, which is just whales as a resource that humans exploit, and on the other hand, instead try to um, see whales really as non-human actors that they have their own agency that are. They have different behaviors and this behaviors, again, is then represented in how humans interact with that. And for me, uh, one goal of the book was to historicize um, also the whales, not only the human actors. And um, this is something I soon figured, uh, soon realized is very difficult um, because we don't have a lot of sources. We don't have a lot of um research on whale um, history as, as a whole that goes be- beyond uh, whaling as an as industry. So something. Um, so I read a lot about um, ecological papers, biological papers, and things like that. And something I soon realized is that nowadays um, our oceans look completely different than they did 200 years ago. Around 85% or up to 85% of the whale, whale biomass has disappeared from the oceans. So in the 19th century, in the 20th century alone, around 3 million whales have been killed at the very least. And this has completely changed not only whale abundance, but our oceans as an ecosystem as a whole. Whales are very important to our oceanic ecosystems. And um, so the big question I had to ask myself is, what did the oceans look like 200 years ago? What, what did people in the Edo area of Japan see um, when they looked out into the oceans in contrast to what I see today when I visit the same places? So during my field work, I did not see a single whale uh, living outside of the, uh, somewhere in the ocean. However, for the people in, the, in Japan 200 years ago, it must have been very different. And this is something I try to conceptualize in the book. I speak of the Cytosphere. I say that uh, probably um, humans were not the main influences on the oceanic ecosystem 200 years ago, but it was whales. So to bring the concept of the Anthropocene a little bit on top of its head, uh, it was whales that had the largest top-down influence on oceanic ecosystems by bringing nutrients from one part of the um, ocean to another part, by um, feeding on... Um, krill and fish and so on and they they had a huge impact on how these different ecosystems worked and this of course also impacted the humans who were also reliant on the same ecosystem especially the the coastal ecosystem. So um, in order to historize the whales a little bit uh, we have to understand where the whales are coming from so we know of 37 whale species that live close or migrate close to the Japanese archipelago and many of them are doing uh, large migration routes. They stay during the winter months in the Philippines and then travel along the Japanese coast to the north uh, in the spring and early summer to the Sea of Okosk, which is uh, north of Hokkaido. And there they feed on the plankton bloom. And this is something that happened probably for millennia whales migrating along the Japanese coast. However, um, when I now looked at my sources and tried to figure out how this all works together, I saw that it's very likely that whales behave differently along the Japanese coast. So whales behave differently in Western Japan than they did in the Northeast. So in Western Japan, they were mostly um, going through there during the winter months when they were not feeding. They were migrating along the coast very quickly. They did not interact with the ecosystem very much. So for the humans, it was not really a big deal of killing these whales because they did not have many interactions with the ecosystem. Um, they were seen as something very ephemeral and something that you could just opportunistically catch on if you if you managed to find a whale that you could drive into a cove. In the northeast, meanwhile, we have a different situation. So here in, at the uh, coast before Tohoku, there are two large... Um, ocean currents, the Kuroshio and the Oyoshio, and they merge together at this region, which brings up a lot of plankton, a lot of fish, and it's actually one of the three best fishing places in the whole world. So there's a lot of um, activity going on there and whales catch on that and they stay there for several weeks to feed after their winter break. And this means also that the whales behave differently. They drive schools of fish towards the shore, as I've already told. They, uh, We have a lot of um, folk tales in the northeast of whales interacting with humans, for example, saving them when they are drowning, something that I did not find as often in Western Japan. So we can see here one example of how understanding whales and their behavior is really important to uh, historicize uh, this whole uh, narrative and also why microhistory is so important because we i really did have to go into the individual communities and look at their individual sources and see how they differ uh, their whale relationship from other places that were like 100 kilometers away 200 kilometers away and so on and really try to figure out okay why are these sources different is it just accident? um Or do we really have a different um, view of whales because they behave differently? And this is what I tried to figure out. So one example of how I tried to do this is through folklore. Um, I looked a lot uh, into folk tales about whales and um, saw that the folk tales in Western Japan are often a little bit different than in the Northeast. Uh, For example, in Western Japan, it's often imagined that whales are on a pilgrimage because they are swimming close to the uh, close at the shore and people in western japan often imagine these whale migrations as whales going to a specific shrine for example the isa shrine or the kumano shrine and so on and um, it was believed that it was acceptable to kill these whales as long as they are not on a specific missions there are many stories of whalers having a dream in which a whale appears and tells them, you shouldn't hunt me this year because this year I'm on the pilgrimage or I'm pregnant. And so please wait um, until next year, until you hunt me. And in these folk tales, um, most often the whalers did not listen to the whales and killed the whale anyway. And the whole village was cursed then. Everyone died in the end, mostly. So this is something I found again and again and again in Western Japan, this story in different variations. In uh, the northeast. Meanwhile, we have other uh, folk tales which have many similar elements, but they are a little bit different. Here, uh, it's believed that whales are bringing riches um, to the coast. That they are um, bringing, for example, fish, but also other riches. That they, as I already said, save fishermen from drowning, but also that um, they would give, they would sacrifice their own lives for humans uh, during famines because then they would strand themselves um, in the Northeast. And then it was believed that it is okay to make use of the whale body because the whale gave up his life on his own volition for the humans. On the contrast, then hunting whales was seen as something negative that shouldn't be done. And this would anger the whales or or the gods. It's something unclear if whales themselves are gods or not. But um, this was seen as something that should not be done. So the behavior of the whales, as you argue, changes how humans regard uh, regard them, how they talk about them, and also which whale practices um, are seen as acceptable and which are not.
0: Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting use of um, folktales of folklore uh, as a kind of uh, macro level, you know, or oral history of a sort. Um, and when you're looking at those patterns and you're also able to back it up with other evidence, uh, it, it actually presents a fairly compelling picture of a worldview, right? Rather than an event or a, you know, particular, uh, person or a particular whale or a particular hunt, but just, you know, these repeated patterns over and over again, a paint of, you know, as you say, a very interesting picture of important regional differences. Um, and this then uh, is the background uh, upon which you're building the second half of the book, Destroying the Cetosphere, uh, where you're starting in the middle of the 19th century, uh, when industrial whaling was introduced uh, to Japan, uh, primarily through uh, Norway and Russia in the 19th century. Um, and you show that initially it's widely rejected in the Northeast and Tohoku, but then that It rapidly transforms the local economies and cultures of cities and towns like, again, uh, Hachinohe and Ayukawa, which are your two sort of biggest case studies um, around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, And then how those uh, towns and the entire region are changed by the sort of sheer scale of the economics of industrial whaling um uh, yeah and 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 this is this is fascinating and i guess the thing i want to flag for uh readers and listeners uh, is the super compressed time scale in which this happened i think this was the thing that surprised me most Um, You know, whaling arrives in Ayakawa in 1906, uh, and that becomes the, as you say, the first whaling town that you discuss in Chapter 6. But then, you've already talked about this, but in 1911, um, you have the, you know, Hachinohe uh, uh, whaling station being burned down, and yet, you argue, quote, in 1912, all protests in northeast Japan ceased. And um, in the final chapter, uh, Washing Away the Past, Tohoku is well on its way to being, uh, you know, that center of the modern industrial whaling industry, which, you know, sees itself as the the great inheritor of national, the great center of national whaling culture. Uh, This is just, this is really mind-boggling to me. I'm used to history not sort of turning that quickly when it's a, you know, major cultural shift like this. I wonder if you could tell us about that you sort of center that in your explanation of what's going on in, ju- in um, the second part of the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, you're not the only one who was surprised by this. I was surprised myself, and that's the question I always get again and again. Why, in the, over the course of a few years, everything changes 180 degrees? If it's such a large part of the local culture that whales and humans um, live together without hunting them, how can people overthrow this Hundreds of year old sentiment in a few years, and it's something I try to bring my head around. I think I have a few answers. I don't know if I have all the answers, but um, maybe let's start with uh, the two case studies and then see if we can, if I can uh, make the argument. So first of all, Ayukawa. Uh, i already mentioned this term a few times now. Um, It's in Miyagi Prefecture at the Oshika um, Hamto, Oshika Peninsula. So it's uh, one of the most, I think, the most eastern point of Japan reaching into the Pacific Ocean, Ocean. And the Oshika Peninsula, we have to imagine, are many small coves. And in almost all of these little coves is one fishing village. And the last of these fishing villages at the very tip of the cove uh, is Ayokawa. It was also the place that was first destroyed in the 2011 tsunami because, as I said, it's the most eastern point. Um, in the Meiji period, so in the, around 1900, it was a very small fishing village, village with very limited resources. So basically, there was only fishing as one way of, uh, of doing commerce and the other way was tourism to a close-by island called Kinkasan, which is very important um in the northeast uh, for religious reasons and the town at that time was really struggling so there was a large tsunami in 1896 which destroyed large part of the town and then only one year later in 1897 there was a large fire on kinkasan which destroyed the temple on the island and both of this um, really worried a lot of the local elites in ayokawa of the future of the town so they came up with a plan which was to bring whaling to the region. Because we have to understand, um, Kinkasan, the the little island, is just at the the place where these two uh, ocean currents I talked before meet. And it's often called the castle of sperm whales locally because so many sperm whales and other whales can be seen from there. So the idea was to invite whalers from Western Japan who had just recently um, introduced industrial whaling and to bring them into the town and bring whaling there to diversify the economy. And this is exactly what happened. Um, The whalers did bring a lot of wealth to the town, but they also brought a lot of coastal pollution. The first whaling station was built directly at the local stream, um, which was immediately polluted. There was also a local uh, school, which was also affected by this. So there was a lot of discontent in the town and the local elite um, positioned themselves as mediators, as a neutral party to solve these problems. Um, and they um, for example, um, brought the whalers to build a new school with, with the money of the whalers, but also to build a new whaling stations, which is a little bit off the, uh, a little bit away from the town and things like this. And so the local elite could convince the most people in the town to accept whaling, even though uh, these were the same people who profited the most from whaling. Because um, for example, the, the mayor of hachino um, uh, of Hayukawa, um, then bought the old whaling station and made a whale fertilizer plant out of it, which again polluted the whole town, but he was very well off uh, soon afterwards. Be it as it may, um, the coastal pollution issue was partly resolved, the new whaling station they built uh, was a little bit better than the old one, but nevertheless there was still a lot of pollution going on, and so a lot of new jobs were created in Ayokawa. One of the first jobs was to go to the beach and pick up all the uh, carcasses from the whales and bring them somewhere else to not pollute anymore. And many people from outside of Ayokava began to rush into the town because of these, you jobs. And so the locals became marginalized in their own town. Um, the town had like 300 inhabitants prior to whaling, and a few less, few years later, it was over 1000. And then from there on it, they could grow up, up to 7,000 people. And most of them stayed there because of whaling. So, and these new people, of course, were all prevailing as they came specifically due to be part of this industry. Most of them were from neighboring towns, um, and they worked in low-end jobs. All of the good jobs were given to people from Western Japan, while the locals had to well take whatever is um, is left off. But nevertheless, over time, in the 1920s and 30s, as I show in the last chapter, uh, Ayokawa really came into itself. And the local, no locals, I guess, the new locals uh, began to establish their own whaling culture, which, in which they imitated Western traditions and uh, reinvented them in Ayokawa as a new whaling town with many traditions that were originally from Western Japan. And this is what you mentioned at the very beginning these invented traditions that happened in the 1930s and 50s. But the most important point, I think, is around 1910 when um, the locals became a minority in their own town. And this is how it played out in Ayokawa. And so this is one of my case uh, studies. The other case study is Hachinohe, which is a much larger city. And here it was a little bit different from the socioeconomic socioeconomic standpoint. So there were um, over 10,000 fishermen living in this region. Uh, unlike Ayukawa, the geography is very different. There are not many little coves which are mostly secluded and uh, pollution is contained to one cove, but it's a large strip of land that goes into the water, a large a coastway, which means if there's some if there is pollution somewhere, then pollution is everywhere because the wind drives it along the whole coast. So here, the story is very similar. Uh, Local elites also invite whalers from Western Japan. They arrange secret meetings with these whalers um, to um, bring whaling to Hachinohe. Um, However, they also make some secret business deals. And in these business deals, the local elites um, say that the whalers can hunt as many whales as they want, but all the whale carcasses have to go to the elites who then um, can make whale fertilizer out of them. And once this deal is made public, many other people who were not in, invited into this group realize that not only have they now all the coastal pollution, but they also will not profit from whaling because the deals are already made and many other fertilizer producers are left out. And this lead, did lead to a very explosive a situation. On the one hand, we had many disgruntled middle sized fertilizer producers who were very unhappy. And then we had many, many uh, local fishermen who were not very well off and who saw whaling as a large threat because of the cultural reasons I already mentioned, but also the ecological reasons. And this all came together in Hachinohe. So we have to know in 1911, uh, the first whaling station was built in June. Uh, the whalers killed over 180 whales in the first season and they killed so many whales that they did not really have time to process them. So they just cut out the best parts and threw more or less the whole carcass back into the ocean. And of course this caused a lot of pollution as everyone had expected. And um, because of that, the um, many coastal flora did die That uh, in that year, for example, surf clamps which are normally uh, selected also um, picked up by locals, did all die this year. Um, also, uh, th- it was very close to a nesting place of seagulls, which were also disappearing. And um, the worst thing for the fishermen was that in this year, the fish did not come. If this is really related to the to the whaling industry or not, I do not know. Um, the fish were already over harvested at that point. So there could also be other ecological reasons. But uh, whatever be made the case for the fishermen, it was very clear. Okay, the whalers are at fault here, and so the disgruntled um, fertilizer producers could um, did make arrangements with the fishermen, and together they la- made this very large protest and walked into the whaling town, uh, whaling station, and eventually burned it down in on November first of uh, nineteen eleven. Okay, now the world uh, the whaling station is burned down and the question is um, what's next and how do we solve this situation and how did the whalers now try to reconcile with the locals and this is a very interesting story i find because for the uh, whalers it was not so much the whaling station itself that was important also uh, the, the whales for killing them but uh, the strategic location of achino so Hachinoe is just south of, of Hokkaido. And the whalers really wanted to push into Hokkaido and bring whaling stations there as well. And Hachinoe was the bridgehead from mainland Japan to Hokkaido. So it was very important for them that they had a base in Hachinohe from where from where they could go to Hokkaido. So it was very important that they could do whaling in Hachinohe. So, the uh, president of the largest whaling company, Okajuro, came from all the way from Western Japan and tried to find a solution with the local fishermen. And he um, hired a lot of the fishermen, even those who had been arrested um, in the riots. Um, also, the family of these fishermen were, were helped. They, uh, the company, Toyohoge, did uh, compensate the fishermen, they did not press for charges. Many of the rioters were actually um, put before before a judge and had to do some prison sentences, but they were um, pardoned just a few months later when um, Emperor Meiji died, so they could all go home. So everything was done to help the locals to become part of this new industry. But there are also other factors uh, which I want to point out. One of them is that the whalers brought with them new technology, uh, most especially motorized boats. And with these motorized boats, you could not only hunt whales, but eventually these motorized boats also came to the fishermen. And with that, the fishermen could now go out offshore to hunt fish. And because of this, whales were no longer needed, no longer needed to bring the fish towards the shore because now the fishermen could go where the fish actually are. At the same time, the motorized boats, um, some of them were so large that you could proceed the whales on them, which meant everything was happening out offshore somewhere where nobody saw it and the pollution happened over there. So, not so many people cared anymore. Also, we have other technology which just came to Japan in 1911, 1912. One of them is refrigeration, which allowed to uh, harvest whale meat during the summer months when the whales are in the northeast. And the second, um, technology is uh, making cans, so canneries, which also allowed to process the whale meat into in the canneries and then bring them to other places in Japan. And these new inventions, just so happened to come around at the same time, really helped um, to make the Northeast more interesting and more economically viable to use the whales, which previously during the summer months whale meat just rotted away too fast. Now you could actually do something to store them and with that also reduce the pollution that happened beforehand. And this is what I argue in the book is really how the Northeast became so quickly part of this new um, whaling regime by uh, making use of the summer stock of wells, by using new technology, by helping the fishermen become part of this. And um, all of this is a very large success story for, in the short time, for the whalers. Um, But it destroyed the whale stocks over the course of a few years. I think fin whales in Ayokawa were more or less extinct by 1914, so only like um, eight years later. And in many other places, whales just disappeared completely. So this is the destruction of the Cetosphere I described at the very beginning. And also in Hokkaido, where they then brought new whaling stations um, most of these wedding stations only stayed for a few years because they were so successful that they killed almost all the whale stocks. And this is something that um, Japan, the Japanese whale stock, did not really recover from um, on t- even today, I would argue.
0: Yeah, I thought this was a, a really sort of compelling way in which you've shown uh, how... The, you know, this short-term win-win kind of situation that depends on, um, as is often the case, the externalization of the uh, the, the, the the downside effects. Um, And in fact, uh, that happened at such a rapid pace that, as you say, you know, the fin whales are extinct off the coast of Ayakawa in just a few years and so on and so forth. Um, And I guess, you know, maybe this is a a follow up question to that, which is that, you know, given that uh, the short term spectacular success turns into um, you know, very quickly, a kind of ecological, and one would assume then, uh, you know, economic tragedy. Um How does that sort of recover to, you know, because you have another sort of astonishing turnaround to now, you know, the identity as the sort of whaling capitals of this, you know, of Japan. Um So what is it that's happening there, you know, once you've sort of had this initial, um, you know, disaster, uh, if you will?
1: Yeah, so what happens is that the Northeast, which was, as I said, the most prominent whaling, also whale place uh, beforehand became um, devoid of whales. So two things happened at the same time. On the one hand, the large uh, whaling groups from Western Japan tried to find new places, especially the Antarctic Oceans. So they built very large ship and they go to the Antarctic. And this is in the 1930s where they then have most of their um, resources put into. And on the other hand, we still have these whaling towns, now whaling towns, who are now part of this whaling industry, and they try to become independent of the Western whalers. So they um, hire very small boats, which formerly were used for fishing. And then they try to hunt smaller whale types, something that was not commercially viable beforehand. Here, especially important are minky whales, which are a very, rather small um, whale species, which normally no one did care about. And so in Ayokawa, especially um, people began to hunt their own whales and then develop a whale meat, a whale, a whale eating culture around minky whales, which is something that they continued through the Second World War when um, whale meat was seen as something that saved Japan after the de- devastation uh, of, of the war. And then into the 1960s and 70s when... Um, new ideas of whale tourism uh, became important. And so whale meat was uh, seeing something that could be sold to tourists. And then into the 1980s, when Japan um, had to give up most of its whaling, Ayokawa and a few other places continued a very small scale whaling, mostly focused on a few smaller whale species that they could then promote as whale products for tourists.
0: Yeah. And I, I will say that, you know, just on a personal note, um, you know, I lived in uh, Tokyo for eight years. Uh, you know, I've been to Oshika and uh, to, you know, Kinkasan, and I spent a lot of time in Hachinohe. And I don't think I, I can't recall ever seeing a whale off the coast there. Um, and I just felt like reading your book that I, I it, it wasn't even just that I hadn't seen whales, but that the, the presence of, um whaling i mean, as a, as a sort of uh, cultural factor was not really in in my face in the way that i think some other things were you know like for example uh, i was always aware that you know kamaishi used to be the the steel capital of the east and it was you know japan's pittsburgh and you know there's there's these sort of other things that were much more sort of as i say like in your face that way um but looking back on it you know sort of in the light of the book um Part of what I was realizing was that, yes, I mean, there are those sort of cultural things there. Iacaw, definitely, we're the whale town kind of thing, but also that that um, the change in scale of the actual whaling that's going on in the relatively near waters. And then, as you say, the uh, you know, the fact that most of the whaling is you know, this Cholsa Hoge, this you know survey whaling that's happening, in fact, in the Antarctic. And again, this is this kind of externalization of... The, the sort of issues that that surround whaling um which you know I felt like I, I had had uh, the, the scales falling away from my eyes if you will so I really appreciated that part of the book just as, as a as a reader um so yeah this is uh, this was a, a great conversation and I, I wanted to to ask you um you know what it is now that the book is out um that you are up to these days uh in terms of your research uh what's got you? Uh, excited and interested uh, now that the book is out?
1: Yeah, so um, as you might know, the German system works a little bit different from the U.S. system and other places in that we have to write a second book. I'm currently a junior professor at the University of Tübingen, and for that tenure track period I have to write a second book. However, the topic has to be about something else. Um, So I was not allowed to do anything more with Wales. Of course I could write more papers and stuff like this, but the book had to be a different topic. So um, I thought about myself, okay, I'm an environmental historian. I really learned a lot about coastal ecosystems. So where could I go next? So I decided to go the other direction and I'm now looking at mountains and specifically the Japanese Alps uh, in, uh, for example, Nagano Prefecture, Gifu Prefecture. And I'm interested there also in environmental questions, uh, especially in in, uh, why do we call mountains that are on the other side of the planet, also Alps, like the European Alps. And how does that change the mountain? If you use a European concept to describe a mountain range and then imagine them as European, um, what does that bring to the ecology of these mountains? For example, to the introduction of skiing, but also with construction of hydroelectric dams um, and many other things that changed, also introduction of uh, Taos, uh, as alpine and stuff like this so this is what i'm now looking into my second book and which i will be working on for the next few years
0: that's great yeah and I, i it is one of those mysteries you know the uh the the japanese alps and i've always sort of wondered uh what that's all about so i hope you'll be able to uh come back on in a few years uh and tell us all about it uh but for now i wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast uh and wish you well take care
1: thank you so much